Today, you'll hear from Kevin Itragi, who founded the organization Heretique. In this impulse, Kevin takes us inside the Silicon Valley playbook. He demonstrates the Ten Commandments of software innovation before challenging this new dogma, which has spread beyond California to traditional companies, politics, and even universities. Kevin's organization, Heretique, challenges this status quo by asking what innovation can look like when we break these rules. Kevin then poses the challenging question, based on anthropological theories, what framework would you build to replace the existing one? You can find Kevin on Twitter at GuiveKev. If you've not attended an AAN event before, here's Marcus Rothmuller to explain the idea further. Dear friends, my name is Markus Rothmüller, and together with Laura Keutschöber and the amazing team of EASA's Applied Anthropology Network, I am hosting this new event format called AAN Impulses. In each event, we provide you with an impulse of human-centeredness, presented by Applied Anthropologists to improve the world impulse by impulse by impulse. Each session ends with a challenging or provocative question to spark discussion among the audience and the broadly growing community of Applied Anthropologists. The AEN impulses are provided by Applied Clubs, a space for sub-communities and more specific groups of Applied Anthropologists to meet, exchange knowledge, discuss needs and action items, and to find mentors, friends and jobs that can support your career as an Applied Anthropologist on the long run. If you have any suggestions for future impulses, or if you want to learn more about Applied Clubs, or even open a new club around your favorite topic or field of Applied Anthropology yourself, reach out to me directly via email or LinkedIn. So if you'd like to join this exciting journey, definitely reach out to Marcus or Laura. At the AAN, there's always an opportunity to be engaged. Now, without further ado, here's Kevin Etragi. I'm really happy to to be here with you and to have been part of the conversations and understanding better what you're what you're trying to do. Uh, it, it may be the first time that I'm uh, talking to a group of anthropologists, so uh, I, I hope uh, you will find what I what I will present you interesting and I'm, I'm really hopeful of uh, being able to gather also knowledge and perspectives from from you in return. So I, I hope this will be really interesting. So, uh, as Marcus told you, uh, I I founded, uh, I guess I started working on it two years ago, but it really came out uh, last year, uh, a company, an organization called Heretic. And what we do at Heretic is we imagine, we craft, and we share digital alternatives. So uh, this may seem like a very conceptual notion, but I, I will I will give you more details about what it means. Uh, but basically, we have three types of activities. We do some research, private research, uh, on the subject. We develop products and services, and we do some consulting, training, and teaching activities for different type of groups. Uh, so teaching in in universities uh, and training and consulting for private companies uh, and also public entities like the Council of the European Union. Uh, so, so a really a different bunch of, of people. So as I was telling you, what we are focusing on is basically digital alternatives and what it means is basically anything that uh, goes against the digital standards. And the digital standards, uh, to, to be really quick, are, uh, have, have been set by the tech giants that conquered the world, that started in California and, and Silicon Valley and then conquered Europe, South America, Africa, and then 
have seen their clones emerge in Korea, in China, in India, uh, and have um, put a model that everyone seeks to copy now. And you have all these startups like Uber, Deliveroo, Netflix, Spotify that go uh, in the same flow, and also big companies, uh, traditional old companies trying to adopt the same model. And so the question that I've always looked at, so before we're looking at the strategies and now more looking at the ideology, ideologies of these actors is what do they have in common? Uh, and so usually I do some kind of exercise, uh, which I call uh, digital autopsia, autopsy. So, uh, but now I'll give you just the answers. Uh, so I have identified 10 things uh, that seem really important to me uh, in, in regards to their, their, their view on innovation. First, they believe in changing the world through technical innovation. So uh, Larry Page, the founder of Google, Sergey and I founded Google because we're super optimistic about the potential for technology to make the world a better place. How do, do they want to do that? Basically with digital technologies. So what, what they do is they try to connect, digitize, modelize, and automate everything and everyone. Facebook was built to accomplish a social mission, make the world more open and connected. Our mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So connecting, modelizing, uh, digitizing, and also automating, we can see everywhere. Uh, the last uh, and more uh, pervasive example is uh, Gmail that tries to complete all your, your, your emails now. So automating your thinking, your decision and action. They build tools to solve problems for consumers and producers, which is something really important to me. So there's really a focus on problems. Uh, so Facebook aspires to build services and wants to focus on solving the most important problems. And who they do that do they do that for? Uh, for customers. And we'll be challenging these statements afterwards. The tools they built essentially provide four things. They provide comfort, predictability, uh, volume, and efficiency. So if you look at Google Maps, it won't tell you uh, what is the most beautiful uh, itinerary. It won't tell you the one you don't know or the one you like. It will tell you just the more efficient and quick from point A to point B. And uh, the CEO of Tencent, a company that does WeChat, says the primary goal for technology should be helping humankind increase efficiency. They structure marketplaces to connect consumers to producers. So if you look, there's always two sides and they connect two sides, the demand side and the supply side. Someone wants to know something and someone wants to explain something, they connect on Google. Someone wants to buy, someone wants to sell, they connect on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And how do they do make money? Basically, they exploit humans as resources to generate profits. So they extract the attention, the time, the data, the knowledge of the users to generate profits. Here's Sean Parker, which was the first Facebook president. Facebook exploits a vulnerability in human psychology to consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And Rita Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, that tells us we actually compete with sleep. So they're trying to extract all the time we have, even the sleep time we have. Strategy-wise, what they strive to do is to conquer the world uh, through entrepreneurship and through exponential growth. And you have Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal and Palantir, which is the software used by all in intelligence uh, services that says, if you're a startup, you want to get to a monopoly. So really that's uh, an ambition and it says competition is for losers. Last three ones, uh, while striving to conquer the world, what they do is prioritize their vision and their selfish interest over the common good. And they try to escape collective decisions uh, and you have Eric Schmidt, which was the ex-president of Google and now works at the Pentagon, 
let's say I wake up every morning and I fight regulation. It's what I do. It's my job. Uh, and that's why they don't uh, obey all uh, competition law, work law, tax law, any law uh, that goes behind them and their grand vision has to be uh, escaped. While doing all that, uh, they, there are two things they don't really look at. The first thing is the present. So they sacrifice the present and the past to the future. And they always live in their vision and uh, justifying their current impacts by the vision, the grand vision that they are offering. Uh, and this, this quote from Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, I like, he says, often invention requires a long-term willingness to be misunderstood. So if you criticize Amazon, it's not because uh, there is something wrong with it. It's because we are stupid and we don't understand what Jeff Bezos is doing. Last thing is they refuse any cultural or territorial anchors. So they, they act like they don't belong anywhere. Uh, and so if you take any service, Google Maps or Google or Facebook or Uber, uh, it's the same anywhere in the world or even Tinder. So here you have Uber in all these cities across the world. Even if our practices, our cultural background, our, our relationship to love, to communication are different, the apps we use don't take into account any of the differences we may have. Um, and this one is about territory and physical existence, which is from the Declaration of Independence of the, the Cyberspace. Uh, your concepts of property, expression, identity, movement, and context do not apply to us. They are all based on matter and there is no matter here. So these are the 10, uh, 10 major common uh, points I, I identify and we can group them in five groups saying first, these actors are obsessive. They wanna put digital technologies everywhere at the full capacity for everyone. They are reductionist, so they just seek it. Uh, they just look at look, solving problems for consumers by bringing efficiency. They are extractive, so they structure themselves to extract value from their users and monetize it. Imperialistic, so they strive to conquer the world without following any rules or anything. And they are soilless, so they don't care about the present, the past, the territory, and the culture. And so this is what I call the Silicon Valley playbook. And so this playbook is being copy-pasted everywhere. Uh, so it's being copy-pasted in companies and universities. So here are examples from France, but we have books that say Uberize your company. So everyone is trying to Uberize its own company and bring back the model. And in universities, Polytechnique, which is the, the best uh, university in France, trying to be a, uh, work like a startup or bring startup programs. And at the core of the state, we have our president that says, I want France to be a startup nation, a nation that thinks and moves like a startup. So this, this, this concept of startup nation is basically these 10 points uh, I was trying to show you. And this is happening even if on many aspects, this model is a, is a failure. So uh, I don't have the time really to, to dig into it, but it's, obviously for Europeans, uh, uh, an economic failure. We haven't been able to structure uh, digital giants that are as big as the American actors. Our old industries are, 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 are being destroyed and there's huge uh, increase in unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, really not a, a good model for us. It's a political failure. Uh, again, our, our socio-political framework doesn't fit at all with the Uber and Deliveroo models uh, and, and all these, these new models. It's a societal failure. You have 
addiction, uh, you have uh, manipulation, uh, psychological problems, democratic problems, and ecological failure. Uh, the, the digital industry now is uh, uh, represent 4% of uh, the greenhouse gas emissions worldwide uh, and is set to reach uh, 8% in the next five years. And what really interests me the most, these things are really important, it's, it's also a creative failure. There are so many things that we do as humans or uh, that we feel uh, that are not translated into digital technologies and now digital technologies are taking all the time uh, of, our, of our living and so all these things are being lost. Uh, intuition, uh, beauty, imagination, idleness, uh, sadness, mystery, surprise, uh, patience, all these things are, are, are disappearing. And one thing uh, that is really clear to me is that these failures are inherent to the model. Uh, if your business model is to extract people's attention, then necessarily you will promote fake news and necessarily you will create addiction mechanisms. It's not a collateral effect. It's the way it works. If you think regulation is something to be broken, necessarily you will distort the, the politic social political landscape. The question is now, why do we keep doing the same thing over and over again when it obviously doesn't work politically, economically, socially, ecologically? And and the conclusion I came, I, I have, have been coming to is that uh, we we have we have faith uh, in the model, and so we have faith. And the playbook I was just showing you are basically commandments. It's something that now we all reproduce, all companies reproduce without even bothering to ask uh, why are we reproducing this model. So through technology, the world you shall change everything and everyone you shall connect, digitize, modelize, and automate. To solve consumer problems, tools you shall develop, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so this metaphor is something that is, I guess, powerful and may seem exaggerated, uh, but it's it's something that makes sense when when you you look at it. Um, you have prophecies. Uh, Mark Anderson, which is one of the most powerful VC venture capitalists in the Silicon Valley, so says software is eating the world. So he said that in 2011, and now it has become a big sentence in the innovation world. You have profits. Uh, Duke Cutting, which is the founder of Hadoop, which is a big data software, says Google is living a few years in the future and sends the rest of us messages. So this is Google is a prophet and is sending us uh, messages about what's happening in the future. You have gospels uh, like uh, Jesus is born in a stable and all startups are born in a garage and you have all this mythology of the garage and how, how they're born. And this one is my favorite. It's called, uh, it's what I call Ellen's Ark. Uh, so it's Elon Musk justifying about SpaceX that says, if there's a third world war, we want to make sure there's enough seeds of human civilization elsewhere on Mars to bring it back and shorten the length of the dark ages. So it's really taking the same, uh, the same stories uh, and, and repackaging them for 2021. And so I have a lot of different, uh, more examples about this metaphor. I decided to make them short, but if you want to discuss the metaphor, I'll be happy to. And so the question is, what should we do uh, if we think that we are now uh, following some kind of dogma about uh, digital innovation? And so the, quest the, the, the first answer is we just need to stop believing. 
uh, and start questioning the model in itself and not just its impacts, because we see a lot in the media questioning the impacts, but a few times uh, you see the, the, the core model being questioned. Everyone seems to argue that uh, these actors uh, have uh, consequences, but these consequences can be mitigated without changing the core architecture. And I, to me, the, the, the person that said it best is Philippe Breton. Uh, and he said, in the face of what appears to be a, a, a new cult, I plead for a secularization of techniques, a separation of the quasi-religious beliefs that some develop about new technologies from their practical, pragmatic use. So that's what we're trying to do. And basically, the way we do this is freeing ourselves from this dogma and these commandments and saying that none of this is compulsory and we can change at will any of this, uh, these commandments and, and do whatever we feel like. And one way to being convinced of, of, to convince ourselves that we can change it is realizing that these commandments and this model is not a revealed truth. It's the produce of the combination of different ideologies. Uh, and I won't go in details about these ideologies, but you have cybernetics, you have objectivism, you have the frontier myth, you have technological solutionism. And if you don't know these, I invite you to, to dig deeper, but probably you, you do know some of them. Cybernetics is basically a theory that tends to represent the world as a graph of information, saying we can all build a world where we'll network with machines. And when we won't have any institutions, we can auto-regulate our society through the exchange of information. Uh, objectivism is the morality of rational selfishness. Uh, and it's an advocate, advocate for separation of the economy and the state, so no regulation. The frontier meet is the entrepreneur, the world as a place to concur for the braves. Uh, and technological solutionism is technology as a solution to, to all our problems. So there are many ideologies, but these four are really uh, at the roots of the Silicon Valley model that we can see. And there are many different types of ideologies, many other ideologies, many other theories that we could be using to build digital technologies. And in my opinion, I'm not suggesting I have uh, an ideology that I prefer and that I would like to be the new dogma. I'm just saying that we need to open the box again and try new stuff because what we've been trying to do obviously doesn't, doesn't really work. And so digital technologies are a material we can craft uh, it's to me, I see digital technologies like wood, like a material. And I'm asking myself, haven't we spent the past 20 years building bow and arrows with the same wood when, uh, when we could have built violins and chessboards and something else? And so maybe we should try to use the same material to build things that are completely different, that are not just an improvement of a bow, uh, but are something that have a different usage and are looking for a really different goal. And so how do we do that? Basically, we challenge the playbook. And so we move from an imperialistic model to a diplomatic model. And this is something you can see in the open source movement or the platform cooperativism movement that, that seek to build companies and technologies that are community-based and that are not controlled by a centralized entity. Uh, we can move from an extractive model to a protective model. So protect our data, protect our attention, protect our uh, knowledge. Uh, and the more simple things you can see emerge is services like hey.com or protomail, which are services that make you pay for the service 
instead of extracting your data for the service. And so Proton Mail is in Switzerland, it's five euros per month, and you have a really sleek email service uh, that protects your data and you just pay for it. But this is not the most interesting part to me. The most interesting part to me are these three, uh, the soulless reductionist and obsessive parts of the dogma. Uh, and we need to move to a rooted uh, innovation, rich innovation and relevant innovation. And so what do I mean by that? Basically, it's moving for from an innovation that is taught as one services for all to an innovation that is rooted in a territory, rooted in a community, in a tradition, in a way of life. Moving from solving problems to reinstating a practice, developing a skill, defending a right, provoking emotion, enriching a culture, uh, upholding a value, realizing a dream, rekindling a memory. So basically we need to enrich our vocabulary. We've been focusing on solving problems and this uh, limits our, our thinking and creativity so much that uh, it limits the product and services we build. Moving away from the consumer to the citizen, the child, the romantic, the artist, the explorer, the worker, the timid, the joker, uh, the French, the American, the Canadian, the Chilean, etc., etc. And moving most of all from comfort, predictability, performance, efficiency to intuition, imagination, uh, solidarity, dignity, sensuality, surprise, etc., etc. And the final one being moving from connecting, digitizing, modelizing, automating to disconnecting, hiding information, randomizing information, humanizing processes and services. So really taking the thing, uh, the, the, the model uh, from an opposite point of view. And so to basically show you uh, what that can bring to the table. I'm, I'm going to present you one of our projects that I that I like, and I hope you will you will like too. Uh, that is called Derive, and Derive uh, comes from the the thinking that New York uh, is a is a city that is quite large with big avenues, long distances. It's made for cars, and so necessarily, if you want to go from point A to point B, you will have you will want to take the quicker route. So most of the American cities are like that and so you use google to optimize your your itinerary from point a to point b uh, but if you go in a city like paris uh, it's a city that is that has a more complex urbanistic uh, plan you have streets that smell good some smell bad some with light some darkness uh, sometimes you have parks and sometimes you have monuments and it's cities that historically we've moved in more with intuition uh, than with optimization. And so Google is not basically the best way for us to move from point A to point B. And if you, if you, you look at history, Paris is a city that gave birth to what was called the Wanderer, uh, the, the Flanner, sorry. Uh, the Flanner was this, this persona that was just getting lost in the city and in the streets uh, and was trying to discover uh, his city. And Victor Hugo said, wandering is human. Flanay is Parisian. And if you compare that to what Google says about moving around, there's a really different perspective. The technology advocate of, of Google said, if you have a mobile phone with Google Maps, you can go anywhere on the planet and have confidence that we can give you directions to get to where you want to go safely and easily. No human ever has to feel lost again. So this is really something that conflicts with the Flanner vision. And so what we wanted to do is reinstate 
the, the act of strolling, uh, reinstate la, la flannerie. So really not solving problems, but reinstate a, a practice. And so we built an app that's called Derive. And the concept is really simple. You are here, you want to go uh, to Châtelet, for example, in Paris. Uh, and basically we'll just give you the direction and the distance, nothing more, nothing less. And so you will be sure that you arrive to the, your, your point of destination, but uh, in the meantime, you can choose the directions that you prefer, either a street you know and you want to take again, or one you don't know and you want to explore. They're really trying to minimize information at the maximum uh, for you to be able to uh, take more, uh, to be more active uh, and, and follow your intuition. The second thing we wanted to build is something to spark surprise. So we built an additional service that lets you send a, a derive to one of your friends and ask and hide the destination. So you want to send him to a restaurant, you send him a link, he will click on it and it will say secret destination and he will just have the direction and the distance. And so there will be surprise and mystery. He has to go there uh, to discover where you're sending him. And once he arrives, uh, then uh, a message will pop up and you'll say, I sent you there because it, rem it reminds us, it, it reminded me of our trip to Lisboa or anywhere. Uh, and this is something that's really fascinating to me because it's something that technically has been possible for 20, 20 years. We, there's no really technical innovation behind it, but it's something that's never been done before. Uh, and so it, it's really, to me, uh, to me it's, it's really something that shows that we've been focused on efficiency and transparency and, and, and all these values. And so we forgot a whole scope of, diff scope of different type of innovations. And so the last thing we wanted to do is encourage adventure uh, and self-adventure. So how do I put myself in, in a position where I, I, I take risks and I, I, I play uh, with simple things uh, and so we, we're building playlists. And so like this one called 99 Canteen, 99 Canteens. And so we put 99 restaurants that are good and, and, and cheap in Paris uh, in, in a, on a web page. And you go there and you just click go and it will send you uh, to a random restaurant uh, in the list. So just for your lunch, usually you think you go on Google, you look at the ratings, you look at the picture, do you like it or not? Here, you will put yourself in a position to risk it. You go to the restaurant if you like it, you enter, if you don't like it, you just choose a different one. So if we take a step back, uh, Derive, uh, in my opinion, is rich, relevant, protective, diplomatic, and, and anchored. It's rich because it's not trying to solve a problem. It's trying to reinstate a practice. It is for the flaneurs, not the consumers. Uh, and it's trying to spark surprise and develop the sense of orientation. So a, a different objective. It's relevant because it's not using more technology than it needs. What we try to do is to minimize the quantity of information uh, at the maximum to just keep the only information that you need to go from your point A to point B. So ultra low data, there is no computation and no automation. It's protective. So we save zero data about any anyone because we don't need to do computation. Uh, it's, it's an invitation to minimize usage. We want you to fix your direction and put the phone in your pocket. And it's a human scale business model. It's diplomatic. So 
it's only available in France. We're not looking to conquer the world. It's something you can experience when you come to France and you can walk with it. Uh, and it's anchored, so it's developed in Paris for Parisians. And it's also super low ecological impact because there's no computation and it's it encourages you to walk uh, from, from point A to point B. So digital technologies are a material we can craft. Uh, and this is the, the message I wanted to convey. Uh, and we, we have put some uh, really specific methodologies, not specific, uh, I say, fun methodologies we're trying to, to work with. Once is called Once Upon a Time that we do with our, our uh, students at Sciences Po. And basically we ask them to abandon one of the current technologies uh, for a technology that is 20 years old. Uh, for a week and to try to look at it and 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 live uh, this experience and then there are th three questions uh, how was it before what was better how is it now what is better and then we ask them to mix it up so trying to bring uh, the best of both worlds uh, and so it's a way of anchoring the usage of their technologies in the reality their culture their territory uh, and so they, they come up with really, really cool innovation uh, on, on photography, on music, on information. Uh, it's, it's really a fun exercise. And another one we do is called animistic design. And so we ask ourselves, what is, who is inside our apps? And so we built an imaginary world that is called Algoville, saying you have a, a city in your phone with a bunch of algorithms that do stuff in each of the applications. And so you have, for example, the speed algorithm that seeks to always promote what makes you uh, gain more time. You have the cocoon algorithm that tries to personalize. You have the spy algorithms. Uh, you have uh, the algorithms, Puri, I don't know how to translate, but he's the one that is trying to push you content uh, that is sponsored. Uh, you have the dealer algorithm that tries to make something that's addictive. The hype algorithm that tries to push things that are uh, the most recent. Uh, and so we try to look at uh, uh, apps with these uh, personas and then trying to replace them and say, okay, let's take back, take off speed and replace it with, uh, um, uh, how do you say, lazy. So a lazy algorithm, what, what would he tell you? He would tell you it's just this way. I, I don't know more, just go this way. So we try to, to play with these methodologies. So the future is open, it's time to explore again, and I invite you to become uh, an heretic. Hi, me again, here to quickly recap Kevin's talk before we get into the discussion. Kevin points to several key aspects of the Silicon Valley dogma. This vision of innovation attempts to make the world a better place by connecting and digitizing everything. They do this by focusing on creating tools which solve problems for consumers with the ultimate aim of efficiency. They connect consumers who want something to producers who want to provide that thing. In order to make money from this service, they exploit humans to extract attention and time. Their aim, strategically, is to conquer the world or to monopolise their particular market. To conquer all, they must act as if they are not from anywhere. This way, their software can work universally. In order to do this, they deprioritize the collective in favour of their vision, 
This includes fighting regulation, ignoring the past, and justifying their impact. In other words, in their mind, the end justifies the means. Kevin points out how these ideals can be grouped into five characteristics. Obsessive, reductionist, extractive, imperialist, and a denial of the past, present, and territory. This model is being replicated everywhere, despite it being a failure economically, politically, societally, ecologically, and creatively. These failures are inherent to the model. For example, if you aim to extract attention, you necessarily create addiction mechanisms. So why do we keep replicating a failing system? Kevin says it's because we have faith in the model. So Kevin and Heretique ask the question, what would happen if we stopped believing and challenged the model? To this end, they created Darive, a mapping app which gives you a direction of travel and nothing else. This way, users re-engage with the city around them as they travel, reintroducing the practice of wandering, or as it's known in Paris, flaneur. The app is only available in Paris, linking back to a Parisian practice of sauntering and observing. This app demonstrates the possibilities of software innovation if we choose to do something different. Now back to Kevin for his challenging question. From what I've understood, so this is the end of my talk, and so from my what I've understood, uh, this is the moment where I I s submit you a question, I, I ask you a question, and then uh, we all work to try to answer this question, and we'll have the time to debrief together after. So the question I wanted to ask you is this one: is based on anthropological theories and methodologies. Can you build a framework that could replace the problem-solving approach? to produce digital innovations. So how, what can we do? How can we look uh, at the world to produce innovations without focusing on problem solving, which is now the most common uh, practice uh, when trying to produce innovations? Awesome, no, that's great. I mean, uh, virtual round of applause for, for Kevin. I think that was really, really inspiring and informative. Thanks so much. Um, I think maybe we just open up the floor for anyone to ask Kevin a question or follow up on a thought, give some feedback or a comment. And obviously you can also say something um, or share your opinion about this question that Kevin just posed. Um, yes, so in the case of um, what is for instance a good way to replace a problem solving approach, and by the way, um, thanks, Kevin, for this illuminating talk. Um, I've enjoyed it a lot, definitely because you really tackled this um, predicament of innovation head on. Um, but what could be a good way to um, attack it is to change it by a more dialogical way of thinking. This, for instance, we know is as you know, dialectical thinking. We have a problem with reaction with a solution. If you go more dialectical, it's something that actually has been mentioned during the last Fuck Up Friday, I think. Um, it's also what defines or you know, mutually defines, for instance, the markets um, thinking and the anthropological thinking or the business thinking and anthropological thinking. Anthropological thinking is always dialogical and always explores things. In that kind of way, it's, it's 
actually already exemplified by the technology that you um, showcased to us via Derive, in uh, in the sense that you have this rudiment uh, rudimentary um, display rudimentary interface that lets you explore more things instead of you know just going to the solution and just cut to the chase. In that kind of sense, I think that anthropologists have been employing this technique for over centuries, uh, at least the last century they have. Um, but it has been more explorative and has been, um, and in a certain way, you can also say that, you know, it starts from the body. It starts from an existential point of view. That's what I know from my background, for instance. I am um, a little bit more versed in existential anthropology. And from that point of view, we know that it's more important to know what makes life worth livable and what makes life worth livable is something that, you know, enriches us in a, in, in a way, and that can be very sensorial, like, um, yeah, I'm just going to stop here, maybe to um, make it more suggestive for other people to, to fill in the gap. But it's something I can give you, yeah. The difference between dialectical thinking and dialogical thinking, and that we have to think more about what makes life more worth livable and what reaches us sensorially. Super cool. Thank you. Hey, Kevin, this was a really great talk. Thanks so much. Uh, it actually dovetails really well with some of my own research. Uh, so, for context, I worked with uh, the Stockholm startup ecosystem for my research. And one of the things that I found really interesting is the way these ideologies become embedded within people's practice. And so often the entrepreneurs that I worked with did not come in with these ideologies. They weren't trying to solve problems or fix everything with technology, but they kind of ended up on that path anyway. And so for me, I think as an anthropologist, it was really interesting to look at the way infrastructures created a kind of curriculum that taught people how to believe these things and implement them within their practice. And so uh, for me, I think one of the things as anthropologists we can do is come in as strategists within these ecosystems to help generate new ways of thinking about how we distribute resources, how uh, just the circulation of certain facts and ideas um, uh, enculturate people into these practices. Especially because often uh, I think people come in with the kind of broad ideas that you've talked about of wanting to do that. Um, but when the only resources available to you or the only resources you know of uh, are those like venture capital and uh, other kinds of uh, risk investment that uh, put forward scaling and those kinds of ideologies that you can't really escape if you don't know there are other resources available. Really interesting. Interesting add-on too, yeah. Does anyone else want to add something or has anyone, does anyone have a question for Kevin? Yeah, sorry. Um, it's not just uh, directly linked to the question, but uh, thank you, um, Kevin, for the presentation. Very relevant for me. And I wanted to, to, to share that um, these topics for me are very important because I already see um, uh, listening to Bernard, Bernard Stiegler, a, a French philosopher that, <clears throat> that is uh, already dead uh, since last year, but uh, all the, it, I the, the warnings he was putting on this idea of Silicon Valley becoming mainstream in the world and like the, we said that um, 
the lack of um, in Europe we have we have like a retard. I don't I don't know how you say that in in, in English, but we have a lack of um, delay. Yeah, delay, and we will never like um, get back the the delay of that we took on technological um, um, solution and innovation that they made in the Silicon Valley for the like two decades. And he was actually trying to change the mindset of uh, big groups to be um, ecologically and social um, conscious and to change the, 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 the parting. I don't know, uh, Kevin, did you, did you heard up about this topic of Bernard Siegler? Yes, of course. Uh, unfortunately, he, he passed away last year. Uh, but uh, I've been to to a few of his of his seminars, and uh, it's it's interesting what you what you say. It's something that is said a lot, which is we are twenty years late, and it's too late. And now uh, we have we are late behind the U.S., and now we are also late behind China, and we're getting late behind uh, Russia. Uh, and this is a notion that is to me really confusing and maybe uh, going the wrong way. So we are late uh, when we're looking at a specific direction, which is the uh, which is the, the dogma that I just presented. Uh, but who says we need to be the fastest and, and, and the best at this dogma? The, the whole question is where are we trying to go? And so are we really, really late at anything or have we been able to take uh, a step back uh, and and now is the time for us to embrace these technologies and to to do something with it because it's a material. It's interesting. It's like when we invented uh, uh, we invented glass. We've been able to do things with glass, uh, and we just didn't stick with wood. So we have this new material we can use, but it would be better to use it in a way that serves our interests, our values, our cultures. And so I'm not sure we're late on the big picture. Uh, we're just late on their perspective on this technology, but not on the the, the bigger perspective. And if you take you take uh, other industries, for example, the the car industry, maybe you have this huge trucks in the U.S. Uh, that that are appropriate for the big roads and their long distances uh, and in Italy uh, you have all, you have cars but smaller cars and you have the Vespas and you have different types of vehicles so they're not able to build huge trucks but they've been able to build Vespas that fit their territory so really this this notion of being late is something that is that is confusing and that is pushing us in a direction that we 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 don't want to be pushed uh, in. Oh, it's it's it, it's definitely because why he talk about a changing mindset because it's not it's not worth it for Stigler I I think and yes, um, yes, yes. yeah yeah I, it's it's um, a pity that he dies because he would be proud of um, the direction recently for instance heretic is taking is really in the way he wanted to to push um, innovation and progress in Europe. Yeah, he did his job, he inspired a lot of people to now. Yeah. And maybe maybe to follow up on what, what the two of you just said, uh, I think one of the, the classic examples for something like that is is the, the autonomous car or the automated car industry, right? Where they are 
basically pushing out a technological um, advanced vehicle in, for example, Silicon Valley, and to train it with um, most of the most of the millions of miles of training happen in Silicon Valley first, and then they push it out into different regions in America or the US, um, and then they basically come to Europe and expect or any like say something much much more drastic like uh, Iran or Tehran, right? They they push it out on the streets there at some point and expect that everything will just work out fine. Um, and kind of bring that back to the discussion of how anthropology could try to help to, to kind of contextualize these solutions to I've been working in that field and we try to investigate how would a, an autonomous car, for example, be able to interact with other human road users in Europe, for example, or even different cities in Europe, right? Um, we have done now a study in Copenhagen in, in very um, busy sections or crossings where you have lots of um, cyclists rushing through, you have pedestrians crossing in all sorts of directions, and you have unregulated an unregulated crossing where the self-driving car would then have to understand, okay, what does this little gesture mean from the cyclist, right? What does that mean? Um, and the same goes for, for then traffic situations in the UK or Germany or Greece or Italy. Um, where I think anthropologists are well equipped because we are very well trained in observing and understanding context and, and kind of hidden symbols and signatures as uh, signs um, and kind of understand the meaning of, of small things in daily life. And we are then well equipped to kind of inform these technologies to also deal with those more complex, maybe not standard situations, right? And contexts. So I think that might be one example on how anthropology can help um, technological solution to, to be more contextual and um, situational. I think to add on to that, I think it's also important to look at the way um, we see technologies as interacting with societies. Uh, so often we think of these innovations as something that is done to a society, but that's really rarely the case. Uh, often these technologies go out and they become appropriated and misused in all sorts of ways and create new innovations that companies don't foresee and often don't ever respond to. Um, so I think as anthropologists, that's a good place of intervention for us to help people start thinking iteratively about how their technologies and their companies interface with society. Yeah, I'll kind of add on to that because in, in my work, I've been um, um, working and increasingly talking to and collaborating with um, roboticists and robotics companies. And um, um, two things, I guess, adding on to what Marcus and Angela said, yes, what we bring to the table is our attention to the particular and knowledge of the particular. Um, and also the experiential, right, uh, which I think is completely obliterated in all of those uh, models that are not rooted in the anthropological thinking. Um, but also based on the whole idea of the experiential, I just wanted to put it out there. It's, it's, uh, um, I noticed, and, and it's, not, it's not a coincidence that um, most of your examples, Kevin, if, if not all were um, software-based. And uh, software-based innovation, it really is eating the world and it really is a question of how is it that um, you know venture capitalists especially prefer it uh, over 
for example, hardware innovation. If you're working in a, in a hardware startup, good luck to you. It's very difficult to raise funds and it's very difficult to actually um, survive and scale up um, precisely because the horizon of capital return is uh, a lot more uncertain and, and a lot, a lot, you know, basically venture capitalists are gonna prefer um, software product over a hardware product. Um, and so um, very often what you see is that precisely then going back to this idea of the experiential, what you see is that it's precisely the fact that um, um, it's the lack of imagination of how people will experience uh, a hardware product in the future that uh, you know kind of trips up hardware um, and especially robotics robotics companies because they don't um, um, they have to address the problem solution kind of dyad always but uh, what they need to be looking at is we need the imagination here we need to really imagine in 10 years what is it that the problem is going to be um, and perhaps you know the software solutions of today are going to be you know problems in 10 years uh, themselves so um yeah those are just my uh, my two cents um but I guess I did the, uh, the anthropological thing there to particularize, right? Uh, to say, oh, but wait, in the hardware world. <laughs> yeah, we do. We actually uh, develop a hardware product too. And we, we, we see it's really diff difficult to develop. Um, and so, and, and the, the venture capital and the, the 10x uh, return on investment they're looking at, they're looking for, makes it really complicated but not not just uh, for for uh, for hardware for software also it's just that software is by nature more scalable and so if you go at a vc it will tell you that you need to do something that is scalable and and available for a billion people and to me really and and it's interesting for me to have your opinion on that but uh, that that really reduces the scope of possible innovation when you say something has to be the same for a billion people. Imagine the, the materials we, we build our, our homes with or the gardens we, we have in our different parts of the world. Imagine if we had to select a seed uh, of a flower that had to work anywhere on the planet, be it cold, be it hot, be it high altitude, low altitude, how, how low diversity we would have. And so in my opinion, it's basically the same thing that is happening even with software, this this imperative to build something that reaches a, a billion dollar revenue is really what kills the, the innovation. And with Derive, our ambition is basically to make 10,000 euros per month for this application. We have other activities, but if we make 10,000 euros per month with this activity, it's well enough to pay the developer and, uh, and to continue uh, pushing this usage and making people enjoy just uh, strolling the street but so just in the, so the question for you guys is how uh, with your anthropological uh, background and, and, and knowledge and practice how do you see this uh, this era as epoch where uh, a billion people use the same tool that works in the same way all over the world. Is it something that is shocking to you or is it something that 
that makes perfect sense and, and is the sense of history. Let, let me just say at this stage how important this question is and this moment for is for us is um, also with the kickstart of, of the Applied Club of Innovation and Anthropology, the Applied Anthropology. You know, Kevin is is not an educated anthropologist and he's coming from a slightly different world in a, in a way. And if we manage to pitch now the perfect way for why anthropologists have to be included, Kevin will take this out into the world with every next uh, next presentation. So with this, with these trumps, I'm introducing whoever wants to take the stage. Um, one thing I can maybe just a jab, of course. Um, I'm not really at home in innovation, but there's one thing, of course, if you're telling about uh, what technologies are going to be widespread, there is a thing that has been um, quite tense these days, and you see that on many scales, is um, the tension between the particular and the universal. For instance, as you just said, you know, if you want to use one seed from a garden that can be planted in every garden, um, what is that seed going to look like? If you can just turn the question a little bit around. Um, <clears throat> other parts of the world will do different things with those seeds and we have our own um, methods and tools for that. We just follow the seed around the world to see what happens with it. And from there on, we can see vernacular ways to deal with how people plant the seeds. How do you, people um, you know, incorporate the seed in, in other pre-existing acts, for instance, that could be, um, that, that, that's maybe more a classic uh, approach. But of course, the other thing that people have to um, take into account if they want to scale up their things is that they really have to observe this tension between the particular and the universal, because if you go too much to either, there's going to be a lack of them. And I think there, um, it's something that you should take into account just to give you one basic dichotomy to work with, which is at, which is at, at, at the heart of false dichotomy, because you have you know, instances that, you know, for instance, the Silicon Valley seems to be like the arrogance of the universal saying, okay, we want to be, uh, instead of diplomatic, we want to be um, imperialistic, we want to take over um, continents, we want to take over markets all over the world, instead of being more negotiating and seeing how this practicality or this particularity uh, actually functions, uh, sorry, how this thing actually func functions in a particular context. And anthropologists have then, you know, historically, especially in the wake of the crisis of writing culture, uh, have been too particular. And actually before that, um, too particular as well, instead of, you know, just focusing on human universals and cultural particulars. Thanks, Simon. Um, very nice. Uh... Can I just say one thing? Please. <laughs> So I think we can uh, look at this from your question, because when you talk about problem solving, I think it is a mindset that, for instance, developers have. Their mindset is always to fix, 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 fix. So when you have an anthropology part of a developing team, that mindset is broken because our goal is not to fix, it's to look at everything. So I think that's where we can actually be part of teams and give another perspective, not the perspective of always fixing things and always try to get the solution. So that's just it, thank you. Cool. 
Very nice. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that what anthropology also looks at often is kind of the the rituals of life or also the rituals of daily life. And that's why I, you know, when I when I went to API days and I saw your presentation, Kevin, and you started talking about flaneur and just wandering around, strolling around the city, um, also enjoying this this kind of moment. For me, this this seems very much like like a ritual of just also relaxing and exploring at the same time. Um, and I think that's something that, that anthropologists are also good kind of spotting those things and what kind of meaning is hidden beyond certain actions in daily life, which um, is something that other people might say, okay, how can we make you faster running through the activity? Whereas we might say, okay, how can we emphasize the meaning for you that that activity has for you? I would also add that one of the strengths of anthropology is really just in the, the challenge and the provocation that anthropology poses, because we're always there to ask why and how and along what lines of power. Um, for me, a lot of my field work was just walking around and saying, okay, when you say innovation, what does that mean? You know, and coming back and saying, okay, does innovation mean a new technology? Does it mean a new business? Does it mean change in society? Does it mean something positive? Um, or is it a promise that entrepreneurship makes to uh, create change through technology? And how all of these layered meanings um, can be used interchangeably uh, to shift people in certain directions without them quite knowing. But what the strength of anthropology is, is kind of getting in there and getting into that nitty gritty. And uh, to use a, an old phrase, we like to make the uh, familiar strange and the strange familiar, right? So. <laughs> Uh, I think that's really the strength that anthropology can do is we can go into say a startup ecosystem and ask why do we uh, gatekeep resources in this way? Uh, you know, when we say, for example, when we're talking about hardware, it's hard to get those startup funds, but oftentimes hardware could be the thing we need. So where are the, the points um, where there's stress, where we can't get those funds and why are they in place and what way can we change that? Um, to create new strategies that are perhaps more creative than you would when you take for granted uh, that say venture capital or risk funding is the only way to do it, where it's going to require that kind of linear progression from idea to business to scale to exit, right? Because it's the only way to do it for them, but it isn't the only way to fund businesses or even nonprofits to solve problems or do whatever else we're trying to do. Um, there's a lot of other ways to go about it. But when we create these ideologies that it's the only way, I think the best way to stop that is to break them apart and make them more complicated than anyone ever thought. Thanks. I really like the, I didn't know the making the familiar strange and making the strange familiar, which is a really interesting way of, of looking at your job. It's I'll like add to you... that another golden oldie, but uh, very true on uh, what people say and what people do and what people say they do are three different things. It yeah. goes into that idea of anthropologists complexify everything and it's a good thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I also realized when I saw Kevin's presentation at the API days, I, I saw that, that he's talking specifically, specifically about richness, right? And richness is something that we talk about all the time as anthropologists. We talk about 
groundedness and richness in going out, right? If you if you look at a certain behavior, activity, or whatever symbol, um, and the classic, here's the old but goodie from my side, right? Somebody's uh, twinking with the eye. Um, what does it mean? And if you're in a club setting, it might be a flirty move. If you are, um, I don't know, hinting to your rubbery friend, then you might say, okay, you can start going into the bank now. So there's lots of different hidden meanings again behind a very simple um, sign or, or conveyed message. And this kind of richness that depends on the context and be being grounded in the context of the situation is something that anthropologists usually dig out. It's uh, but it's 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 really nice to see these words uh, that collide together and and merge uh, and how just a question but how how do you do you define groundedness more than richness because richness is really open but groundedness how do you define it how do you how do you capture it because it's the the thing we have the more difficulty to capture i guess richness really open because richness really opens the debate and opens the possibilities groundedness more closes them so i find it more difficult to to envision I think. With with grounded grounded Terry. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Who wants to explain that? Well, um, grounded as um, in French we say ancré, which means like it's coming out from where you actually are looking into. So as emic, as opposite to etic without the h. So emic means it comes out from uh, whatever you're looking at. An ethic comes out from outside. So it's a matter of point of view. If you look from inside or from the as an outsider or as an insider. So here, yeah, grounded, grounded theory. You want it to be ancré. You want it to come. You want your theory basically to be inspired as much as possible by the people you are analyzing. Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. Sorry, Laura, you, you can jump right in in a second. I, I just make one comment. If you look at the Flaneur app, Flannerie app, I think it's uh, the other name, right? I, I forget the real name of the app. Um, what was it? Derive. Derive. Um, if you look at that, then you would say, okay, the, the, the Google Maps is looking onto a specific plaza, and you're just saying, okay, there are people moving, and he wants to get from A to B then you would say this is the most direct connection and this is the ethic view in a way, right? But what you try is to say, okay, what does the Parisian want to get out of that specific plaza? And the emic view then tells you actually he wants to kind of explore the setting and walk around a bit and experience the place in a second, in a way, right? And this is the, the perspective of the person that you are looking into. So the emic one. No, it's cool. So basically we are not anthropologists, but we... We've been able to recreate some of uh, some of your principles. So happy, happy, happy win, Laura. Win. Yeah. So and, for uh, me, I just want to send send some things in the chat. So we've been we haven't answered, but we'll look at them with uh, with uh, with great pleasure. Sorry, Laura. No, that's okay. I was going to build on Marcus. Uh, actually, I was thinking about that exact same uh, about the and about the the map. 
So another, I think, uh, fairly known in anthropology circles, but I think very accurate metaphor for what anthropology is and does and how it contributes is that, um, you know, the map is not the terrain, <laughs> uh, which is how we explain it. And the terrain is always, uh, it's grounded in that it's experiential and that it's um, anthropology is a, uh, inquiry of, of uh, based on relating. Um, and so for me, it was very telling that when you said, you know, and you know, in Paris, some streets are smelly, some streets are narrow, you know, the, the very fact that you said some streets are smelly made me smile because that's a relation to a place, right? That you could never get um, from, um, from Google. Right, you, you would never get that kind of experiential component from a map. You can only get it from having a relationship and um, experiential relationship uh, to the terrain. Um, and so in that sense, I think Derive is very much anthropological, even if that's not what you were aiming for originally. I think it's what we were aiming for, but more uh... Uh, from our guts, not from our brain, but really experiencing it. But I'll be happy if if one of you wants to look deeper in it and and analyze it with us. I, I, it would be super cool to see how how you how you see it. We we just started now, but I'm really glad you you liked it and you see you see the depth in our in our research. I really would like to have uh, Derry for for Berlin now, which because I'm just moved to Berlin. Um, and what else can you do than walking around in a spring day during Corona times, sure, right? Sure, sure. The only thing you can really do is steady. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, we are already approaching the end of this session, I think, slowly. Um, what else needs to be said? What else is there that somebody wants to be said? For example, what I'm really missing, I, I would love somebody or the, all of us kind of also summarize the last time for for Kevin what is anthropology um what kind of subdisciplines do we have what kind of methodologies do we use etc because also even anthropology itself is so rich in the difference of disciplines that that we have right so maybe somebody wants to start and we can also make a quick round maybe as as a kind of um Final round, um, also hearing everyone just telling us what did they study or what did they look into with anthropology? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sure out of how many 18 people, we will have 16 different topics. Taylor, do you want to start now? Sure. Um, so I get, oh, Jason, I just had a complete mind. So just explaining what I did as background. Okay. So I did my undergrad in anthropology, specifically focused on cultural. Um, as of right now, there wasn't a particular area, it was just understanding just like the linguistic, the cultural element, and that was the area that I was most interested in. Um, so I didn't do any particular research, but now um, two years out of undergrad, I'm actually looking into psychology. So I want to understand, I want to bring my anthropological background into the form of therapy, psychology, especially with the mental health crisis that's going on because of COVID. Uh, so that's where I'm going future forward. Um, that's kind of me and understand. Yeah. Um, Silvana, do you want to continue? Yes. Okay. So I did, I finished my master's in anthropology 
last year uh, in social anthropology in Stockholm. I was pretty new to anthropology. I studied communication and culture previously, and I am now in a master's in computer science. In anthropology, I look at uh, groups of women they are trying to learn to code together as a way to enter the field. Yeah, technology, that's my that's what I've been studying more now. That's why I talked about developers because I'm always trying to bring up what I've learned in anthropology with them and, and it's difficult, but I think they're open for it. So, yeah. Nice. Um, until somebody switches on the camera and wants to go next, I will just say that, you know, Kevin, also anthropology has so many subfields. I mean, there's obviously on the, on the higher level, there's social anthropology, there's cultural anthropology, um, I don't know, guys, help me out. What else there yeah, is? I'll help you out because um, I actually um, I'm uh, the product of a very specific program in the US, which is called the Four Field Anthropology, where they teach you biological anthropology, all the evolutionary stuff, linguistic anthropology, discourse analysis, semiotics, how people talk. And um, Laura, Laura, sorry, Laura, also tell us how you apply for what do you apply those things? Uh, for what we, we can literally apply it for, for any and everything, uh, we just haven't. Uh, so for example, linguistic anthropology, you can apply it in marketing, you can apply it, um, you can do semiotic analysis, um, you can um, study the ideologies and how they travel from Silicon Valley and how they get translated and uh, you know how they get um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, repackaged uh, and challenged locally. Um, you know, is a unicorn a unicorn in French? I wonder. <laughs> it is. It is. Those are those are the semiotic ideologies, as we would call it. Um, but yeah, so I've also said, you know, I've also been for field anthropology. It's also archaeology. So um, the past, the archive is important um, in many ways and uh, archival and archaeological thinking has its, own, uh, has its own application as well in many contexts. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, any and everything that we've, we've studied really, name me one thing that you can think of, we've studied it. We've studied in social anthropology, we've studied UFOs, we've studied pirates. We've studied vampires, we've studied, um, you know, uh, literally any and everything. I'm, I'm hard pressed of a topic that uh, hasn't been studied through an anthropological lens. And so I would say, and uh, you know, very proudly I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm true blue anthropologist is gonna tell you that, um, Anything that you can study, it's the most versatile of, of mindsets that you can have, precisely because it lives in the world and with the world, right? Hi, guys. I'm um, from South Africa, and I caught onto the supply club and really enjoying some of the conversations. I just miss out on half the, um, half the talks, unfortunately, sometimes putting kids to bed. But anyway, it's been really enjoyable. Um, I did anthropology as an undergrad and studied kids and how they learn about their culture in a rural area in South Africa, looking at, you know, how they communicate while well, basically studying their, um, 
letting them do drawings for me to get that conversation started. So really interesting. But I work um, in the built environment as a sustainability consultant. So I don't work in anthropology, but hopefully getting back in an applied anthropology field. Um, but your talk was really interesting and it made me think of you know, a, the same thought process in other technology and how we really stuffed it up in the built environment. Thinking how with, um, say, mechanical ventilation, for instance, in the in the southern hemisphere, and how you know we basically have lost um, our skill to design well with climate because of an in innovation like mechanical ventilation. And I feel that we're doing the same thing in um, in with technology in in. Um, like relating to what you were talking about and just how we can we can think of how we've made these mistakes before um, and you know as a really practical example yes it makes, it makes a lot of sense and makes a lot of sense and a, a lot of the, the the digital innovation and the way they are popularized or just uh, uh, the continuation of a, of a of a story that that's started way uh, way before uh, but and effectively, I don't. It don't seem like we have learned from our from our mistakes, and so we keep saying we are late, and we need to put mechanical ventilation everywhere, so digital ventilation everywhere. I guess. Very nice, Sandra. Thanks for sharing. Um, also, kind yeah. of until the next uh, until the next video comes up, in case a video should come up. Otherwise, you can just shut out. Um, I wanted to say. Also, what what Laura said, you know, we have studied so many things. One of the other things that we studied, and you might know that person very well, Kevin, um, is we also studied science, right? For example, Bruno Latour with laboratory life. Um, so we also studied that. And with that, we automatically started how to come to effect or how to come to a new innovation also, in a sense. And I've been part of this kind of journey myself in different situations now for example now i'm part of a company builder where we are applying like the lean startup and all the processes that you can that you can imagine also coming from the silicon valley and i'm experiencing how this works now for europe myself hands on and before that i've been working in a large european horizon 2020 um, kind of scientific project and so how innovation works there and it's it's always completely different, um, and this also makes it super fascinating to talk about innovation in general. Um, yeah, Patrick. Patrick, do you want to say something about yourself too? Again, his conclusion for face um, as the the core problem uh, of collective aspiration for technological determinism uh, for me is really linked to the 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 thing that. Com the common sense haven't really necessarily the refle reflexivity skills to see the world, how it's changing and so on. So this is why uh, humanities, social sciences, philosophies are so important for the future and the, 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 the era we are living in. Okay, um, who else wants to share something? Come on, Simon, I know that you're there. Oh, Inga is here, look at that. Hey, hi. Okay. Um, one of the things that I wanted that drew me to the topic is through uh, the fact of competitiveness in science and where, and you may have addressed this, but 
a scientific idea gets monetized and competitized and the notion of co competition around innovation uh, robs scientific process of its basic foundations. Uh, and I'm witnessing that through my own uh, son who's at Berkeley, sort of on the fringe, the edge of Silicon Valley. And he reports in on, he's a, he's a scientist and he reports in on people's attempt to monetize everything and to create business out of basic science before the basic science has even taken root. And it leaves him, and I can feel it from him, with a kind of a gut punch, a very uncomfortable feeling about the drive to learn and what happens when it gets stolen from you. So um, although I missed the contributions that were prepared and I'm really sad about that, I hope it's recorded and I can find it. I think so, right? It is recorded, yeah. Thanks, thanks Inga. Um, cool. Does anyone else want to say something? Yeah, of course. Um, I also started off with uh, social and cultural anthropology at KU Leuven here in Belgium. That was a two-year course. Um, the basic thing you learn there in um, the two-year course is that anthropology is basically the study of social progress or social processes. That, it is a great uh, difference from what it used to be because we used to, you know, study like cultures as if they were literally in a petri dish. That is not no longer the approach that we have. It's more about how things evolve, how things change, and how things are always enthralled in a sort of process. Uh, later on, that insight was really interesting in my uh, advanced master's in cultural anthropology and development studies. Uh, therein, we learned actually to tackle on one of the most um, touchy subjects um, that you know is part of a political economy uh, on a global scale, namely development. What is actually the myth of development? What is the, um, what is going on behind the scenes? What is, you know, different from practice and, and, and policy, for instance? So one of the things that um, I gleaned from my three years, of, and actually my fourth year right now, because right now I'm doing a course in, in business anthropology at Humanix. But one of the things that I really learned there is that there is a difference between um, on an analytic side between observing and observance. What observing I mean really literally mean what an anthropology does. It goes with its body, does, you know, goes into full submergent into the field. It uses, employs all the senses, um, tries to, you know, or approaches this um, locality. And then there is observance. Observance basically means what you do with theory, what you do with all the, the written uh, text, what you do with, with a prescriptive, with a normative. And if you don't safeguard or if you do not have like a, a good um, understanding of how these, these two relate, then you cannot call yourself a proper anthropologist, in my opinion. I think many of you concur to that. That's why we have this distinction between emic and etic. There's one side that is analytic, there's the other side that is recollected. Um, or data recollected from observation. And that is one of the most important insights, I think, from anthropology that kind of undergirds um, the um, discipline in its entirety, at least from the social and cultural uh, perspective. And maybe another field that is very closely related to that is um, when it comes to development, and that's just a little uh, thing uh, for sake of familiarity, maybe, is that it... Um, it's probably more closely related to um, or anthropology in general to social psychology. And if, for instance, you take the, um, the, the aspect of anthropology of development is probably more closely related to behavioral economics and institutional 
and the and developmental economics. So there's always like a sister discipline or a certain discipline that does equal say, similar things in a way, but there is always this thing of the anthropological gaze. And if you have been studying anthropology, if you really have been seeped in, then you really understand what is an anthropological gaze. And it's it's very hard to put into words, but the most important thing is definitely human-centeredness in a way, and also the fact that you, you, you really safeguard this distinction or really know how to handle this distinction between observing and observance, as I explained earlier. But that is just one aspect, and there is many more, as has been uh, well, mentioned. Well said, Simon. Thanks. Um, I want to be a bit more mindful of time than I was the last times, so because I also get people complaining about me over always pulling over the time. Um, so unless somebody has something urgent to tell us still, Patrick Lass, yeah. Um, I would like to give Kevin the stage again and, and also kind of maybe reflect a bit what, what he has learned from us today, because I'm sure that we have learned a lot from you and this was very inspiring. So the big applause again, um, big thank you for coming and presenting your ideas and your experiences and the things you do with Heretic. Um, but yeah, I would like to hear from you maybe some last sentences on what you learned about anthropologists and how you think we could help the topics of innovation there. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for the for the conversation, for your your insights, your reactions, your ideas, your everything you shared. It's a, it's really unusual to have this two side conversation. So I really enjoyed it. I think the basic the, the basic thing I learned is I should have studied anthropology. Uh, it's <laughs> I didn't know about it uh, when I was uh, when I was starting college, but. If I had to do it again, maybe that's what I would have done. Um, no, but I, I've written down a lot of the things and the concepts you shared. I've copy pasted a lot of the things that that were in the in the in the conversation. So I have to learn to to search them and to dig deeper and to see uh, what's behind all the words. But uh, ultimately, I think that in uh, what we what we are trying to to bring to the table is the same perspective that you are professional into like we, uh, but we are uh, we are trying to mix some some of your discipline uh, with uh, company strategy and economics and, and uh, experience design and so at one point uh, we will need uh, your core competencies to make our work better so for now we are trying to explore everything but at one point we will need experts and i'm sure from all the discussions we have we've had that if we want to have innovations uh, that are not just copy paste from the silicon valley and are anchored and are uh, rich uh, and that fit with our societies your competencies uh, have to be put at the forefront and uh, and so i don't really know um, how this has to be marketed but from what Laura said, uh, you could be specialists in marketing too. So this is like the snake eating its, its own tail. Um, but if you, I will leave my, my email address too. So and any of you, if you want to exchange, I'll be very happy to. Uh, and I'll keep you posted about, about what, we, what we do. And, and I'll be happy to, to, to follow up with the conversation because it was a really great time for me. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much, Kevin. And I also want to end the session with, with kind of what we are, I think what we are good in here in the, in the network is that we are 
um, sort of developing friendships that also try to help each other out and um, continue sparing, continue exchanging. Um, and, and I can totally see that happening with you and Theoretic. So I think if you, um, I don't know, want to have some more contextual feedback or whatever, us trying out your app, um, looking into a certain topic, looking into a certain cultural um, topic or whatever, I think um, many of us will be more than happy to, to re-engage with you or help you out um, and, and yeah, continue the discussion. Really cool. Great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this impulse. Please join us next time when our speaker is Evita Hajakova. Remember to subscribe to be alerted when we post our next episode and follow us on social media for updates on our upcoming events. We're App Amfro on Twitter, World underscore Needs underscore Amfro on Instagram, and EASA Applied Anthropology Network on LinkedIn.